Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. In my library, I have a fascinating book entitled, Why Clocks Run Clockwise and Other Imponderables. If you have an inquisitive mind, if you hate to admit that you're stumped, if it's hard for you to utter those words, I don't know, then you'll love this book. Its author, David Feldman, and his research staff answered 232 bizarre and baffling mysteries. Feldman calls them imponderables. Here's a sample of some of these imponderables. Why don't people get goosebumps on their faces? Ever thought about that? How do they keep raisins from falling to the bottom of cereal boxes? How do they? Why in any box of assorted chocolates, the caramels are square, the nougats rectangular, the nuts oval, and the cream circular? Wow. Why do donuts have holes? Why are there 18 holes on a golf course? Why 18? Why do you have to dry clean raincoats? I've always wondered that. How and why do horses sleep standing up? Why can't hair grow on a vaccination mark? And then why are the flush handles on a toilet always on the left side? If you've ever asked any of these kinds of baffling questions, then get the book. Feldman provides the answers. Yet he also admits that there are some imponderables that despite his extensive research remain a riddle. These expert stumpers he calls frustratables. And in my opinion, the Bible is a book that is full of frustratables. The triune nature of God. Creation, ex nihilo, or out of nothing. The parting of the Red Sea. Joshua's long day. Jesus' multiplication of the fish and the loaves. His walking on water. The raising of Lazarus. Our Lord's resurrection and ascension. 
People have pondered these events for centuries. They've tried to explain how they occurred, yet they remain as mysterious today as when first happened. And there is one biblical imponderable, a true frustratable, that stretches the limits of logic further than all the others. It is the miracle of the virgin birth. How can a woman who had never experienced sexual relations with a man possibly conceive a child? It was the great reformer Martin Luther who once wrote, in a rather tongue-in-cheek manner, the incarnation consists of three miracles. The first, that God became man. The second, that a virgin was a mother. And the third, that the heart of man should believe this. Even with the tremendous advances in the field of reproductive science, in vitro fertilization, and test tube babies, and cloning, etc., etc., nothing even remotely helps to explain the mechanics of the virgin birth. With all the advances in obstetrics, though they are marvelous, they are all explicable. The virgin birth is not just marvelous, it is miraculous. Note a miracle is a phenomenon that's impossible to explain in scientific terms. It goes beyond the scope of science. A miracle can't be replicated in a petri dish or studied under a microscope. It depends on God's direct intervention. You see, miracles are not just improvements in technology or biological breakthroughs. No, a miracle usurps natural laws to accomplish a divine purpose. Miraculous events are intended to baffle the intellect, to drive us to our knees, to force us to face our limits. Miracles bring us to the brink of understanding and the beginnings of faith. The inquisitive and technical and analytical and mechanical mind has to give up in the face of a miracle. One can never figure out what only faith can grasp. It was Tertullian, the second century Latin apologist, who once commented, I believe because it is absurd. It was the fact that he couldn't figure God out. His omniscience, the incarnation of Christ, even his second coming. It was the fact he couldn't figure these things out that drew him to faith. And I agree. If God's ways can be deciphered with my little pea brain, that means he's not much of a God. If the God I serve doesn't frustrate my thinking, then he's not worth a God worth serving. It was philosopher Mortimer Adler who became a Christian at age 82, he made this comment. I believe Christianity is the only logical, consistent faith in the world. But there are elements to it that can only be described as mystery. My chief reason for choosing Christianity was because the mysteries were incomprehensible. What's the point of revelation if we could figure it out ourselves? If it were wholly comprehensible then it would be just another philosophy. You see, a miracle puts life in perspective. A miracle reminds me of who God is and of who I am. Up against a miracle, my wisdom seems naive. My intellectual prowess so shallow. My mental powers so weak.
while God appears more God-like. You see, Christmas is a time for humbling our hearts and our heads and marveling at a miracle. A virgin conceived. The Word was made flesh. God became man. The Ancient of Days became a child of time. The Infinite became an infant. And how did this happen? Well, the information is sketchy, but here's what we do know. The Spirit of God overshadows a virgin's womb. The seed of the spiritual impregnates the human egg. The divine seed is planted into the human soil. The human and divine intermingle and blend and become one. It is a miracle in the highest order. And that's as far as I allow myself to go. To me, it's inappropriate to probe any further. This is holy ground. From the blazing bush on the side of Mount Sinai, God told His servant Moses, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. And in my opinion, the virgin birth is also a reason to slip our sandals off our feet. It's not for us to scrutinize here. At this, we should stand in awe of God's omnipotence and God's wisdom. See, Christmas is not a time to get analytical. Christmas is a time to gawk at God. The angel that came to Joseph knew he was a man of true faith. He didn't need an explanation to believe. All Joseph needed was a reminder of God's promise. This is why the angel notes the guarantee that God gave to the nation in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Originally, this promise was to the, king, to, to the kings of Judah, of which Ahaz was one. At the time of Ahaz, Judah and Jerusalem, they were under siege by invading armies. In fact, the king was petrified. Isaiah, though, assured King Ahaz that God was in control and that God would deliver the Jews. In fact, to prove it, he tells King Ahaz that if he just asks, God promises to give him a supernatural sign. For some reason, Ahaz was reluctant to ask. That's when God blew his mind. For the prophet announced to King Ahaz that God would initiate his own sign, that behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In other words, if God can enable a virgin girl to conceive a child, then he can get King Ahaz and Judah out of hot water. This was the sign that was ultimately fulfilled when Mary, a virgin from Nazareth, conceived a son and named him Jesus. Over the years, liberal scholars have tried to water down this prophecy. They've noted the Hebrew term Alma, translated in Isaiah 7 verse 14 as virgin, can simply mean a young girl. And this is true. In the Hebrew language, Alma can refer to a young girl of marriageable age. But this word is used seven times in the Old Testament. And in four of the seven cases, the context of the passage requires that the term refer to a true virgin. In two of the remaining three examples, though it's less clear, it's also probable that it refers to virgin maidens. But here's the real clincher. 
Remember, this birth was to be a sign to King Ahaz. What kind of a sign is it for a young girl of marriageable age to conceive a son? That's an everyday occurrence. That's no big deal. That's a sign of an ordinary event. But this was to be a sign. This was to be something unusual. This was to be something that attracted attention. This was to be an extraordinary event. A sign indicates that God is up to something special. Thus, a virgin, a true virgin, was to conceive. If there was any doubt as to what Isaiah meant, it gets cleared up a little later. Four centuries later, after Isaiah wrote, still 285 years before Jesus was born, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And guess how the translators render Isaiah 7, verse 14? They translate the Hebrew word Alma with the Greek Parthenos, which means absolutely, clearly, unequivocally, a girl who has never had sexual relations. And here's the icing on the cake. When the gospel writer Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14, and writes it down under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he also uses the word parthenos. Obviously, when Isaiah said, a virgin shall conceive, that is exactly what he meant. And there are other Old Testament passages that affirm God's promise of Messiah's virgin birth. The miracles spoken of in different Bible passages throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 3, for example, anticipates the ultimate conflict between the Savior and Satan. God speaks to the serpent Satan in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus. But Jesus will inflict on Satan a mortal wound. That's exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus got a heel bruise, whereas Satan got his skull crushed. Jesus absorbed a bruise to win the battle. But notice in Genesis 3 verse 15 how God refers to Jesus. He is the seed of the woman. This is the only occasion in Scripture where a woman is spoke of as possessing a seed. The man supplies the seed, not the woman. Genesis 3 verse 15 predicts a unique, a supernatural birth. Also consider Jeremiah 31 verse 22. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. The Hebrew rabbis writing before the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, they understood this verse to refer to a birth by supernatural means. One rabbi explained the verse as follows. Messiah is to have no earthly father. Another Jewish rabbi rendered the verse, The birth of Messiah will be without defect. The birth of the Messiah will be like that of no other men. And then a third rabbinical comment on Jeremiah 31 verse 22 put it, The birth of Messiah will be like the dew of the Lord as drops on the grass without the action of a man. You see, these interpretations were provocative. It meant that Jewish scholars living long before the time of Jesus, understood that the prophet Jeremiah had predicted that Messiah would be born of a virgin. 
And understand, the virgin birth is not only prophesied in the Old Testament, it is also essential in New Testament doctrine. If Jesus was the bastard child of Mary's infidelity, or even the legitimate offspring of her marriage to Joseph, then rather than God, Jesus would be a mere mortal. He would be a common sinner like you and me. If Jesus were not God, he could not have been our Savior. You see, spiritually speaking, the human race inherited its sin nature from its dad, not its mom. Romans 5 tells us that in the Garden of Eden, both Adam and Eve sinned against God, but sin was passed down through Adam, not Eve. Thus, the reason we are born in sin... The reason every human is wicked from the womb is due to our distant daddy, Adam. When he first sinned, it was the first Adam bomb. And its fallout has been felt ever since. Yet because Jesus was born of a virgin, he had no human father. Since his father was God, Jesus was able to bypass the rebellious bloodline of Adam. Jesus' humanity came from his mother Mary, while his spiritual nature came through the Holy Spirit. Jesus might have inherited Mary's Jewish nose, but he inherited God's divine nature. In Jesus, God became flesh. Jesus was born sinless. See, if he had been born into sin, even if he'd lived a perfect life afterwards, he still would have died for his own sin, not our sin. No, to die for us in our place, Jesus had to be guiltless not only from birth, but in birth. Understand, the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus are the underpinnings of all Christian theology. These are not optional doctrines. They are absolutely necessary. Hey, kick out the cornerstones and the whole house comes crumbling down. Without these vital points of Christian faith... All of Christianity becomes a house of cards. Without the virgin birth, Jesus is not the God-man. He is the con-man. Our salvation becomes a sham. Never mind peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Forget Christmas is for kids. Take back the present. Spit out the eggnog. Ignore Christmas cheer and charity. There is no reason for the season If Jesus is not born of a virgin. Without the miracle of the virgin birth, our Lord Jesus is not who he says he is. Years ago, I was watching a Christmas special on television. It was one of those fun-filled variety shows. It was hosted by Casey Kasem, and I was enjoying the show. It was getting him in the Christmas spirit, you know. But in his closing comments, he made this statement. He said, Christmas used to be for Christians who worship Jesus. But today, Christmas is for everyone who wants peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Really? I mean, that bogus statement ruined the whole show for me. I couldn't disagree more. The foundation of Christmas and Christianity are identical. Hey, that's God in the manger. If it was just another child Mary laid in the manger, then the world would be no better off than before his birth. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men would remain a pipe dream. 
Christmas without the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus might still be used as an excuse to party, but it would certainly be no reason to praise. The holiday we call Christmas would become a hollow day, not a holy day, without this special miracle. And this is why Satan has worked so hard for so long to attack this vital doctrine. You see, Satan's strategy is twofold. He encourages us to doubt the truth of the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus. And if he's unsuccessful to get us to doubt it, he tries to distract us from it. Doubt and then distraction. If we're distracted, we'll never consider the implication of these vital truths. You see, even in Jesus' own day, Satan stirred up doubts about Jesus' roots and origin. In the Gospels, his enemies try to drape a shroud of suspicion over his parentage. Once, the Jews were boasting that Abraham was their father. They thought they got to heaven through heredity. But Jesus set the record straight. If Abraham was their dad, they would be mimicking Abraham's faith. That's when the Jews mocked Jesus. In John 8, verse 41, they sneer. We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. But notice the insinuation. The Jews suggested that Jesus was born of illegitimate birth. Jesus goes on to tell them that God is his Father, and their Father is the devil. But obviously, Satan tried his best to attach a sinful stigma to the birth of Jesus. Another attack was launched later in the first century by a heretical cult known as the Gnostics. In fact, many of the extra-biblical books that sort of get recycled through the news nowadays, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel according to Judas, these were Gnostic writings. And they were well known by the early church. In fact, they were roundly rejected as heretical. Much of the New Testament, in fact, was aimed at defending the Christian faith against these false assertions of Gnosticism. The term Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, or knowledge. The Gnostics were heretics who claimed to possess a special knowledge. In essence, the Gnostics believed that God was revealed out through the universe, sort of like the sprinkling out of pixie dust. That God had been scattered throughout all of nature. Thus, there was a little of God in all things. In holy men of ages past, in the angels, in the mountains, in the animals, in the plants, even in man. That God was everywhere and in everything. Sort of like what we hear from the New Age circles today. That the divine pixie dust had just been sort of scattered out, sprinkled out across the vast universe. Thus, the Gnostics taught that there was nothing unique about Jesus, that he was just one of God's many revelations. He was a way to God, but not the way to God. And the early church stood staunchly against this heresy. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul takes aim at Gnosticism. He says, For in him, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In short, God is no pixie dust. God isn't sprinkled out across the universe. 
No, according to the New Testament, the totality of God resided in one human body, in the body of our Lord Jesus. Imagine that. The eternal God, the Almighty, who overflows all universes, somehow compressed and compacted, encapsulated into the tiny body of a baby. That means that if you want to find the revelation of God's will to mankind, there's really only one place to probe. God has placed all the eggs of incarnation in one basket, or better yet, one manger. All that God wanted to say to you and me, He has said in Jesus Christ. That first Christmas morning in Bethlehem, do you think anyone actually grasped the significance that God, that the God who shares His glory with no one, that the God who is so holy, no man is allowed into His presence, that that same God lay sleeping in the straw? See, Satan encourages doubt. But when doubt fails, he tries to distract. And here's a sly maneuver. For what's the difference between ignoring a truth and doubting it? Practically speaking, if you believe in the virgin birth and in Jesus' deity, yet if you ignore these truths, are you any better off than the person who doesn't believe at all? I mean, neither person worships. Neither person carries out a commitment. Neither person cares to obey. Neither person really loves the Lord. See, if Satan can't get you to doubt the truth about Christmas, the next best thing is to just get you to ignore it. And I am surprised at how successful Satan is at creating this indifference, especially at the one time of year when our devotion should be at its peak. Too often, folks act like the residents of Bethlehem that first Christmas morning. God was in the manger but they were all too busy with life to go and see for themselves. Reminds me of the tragic tale of a young couple who invited friends to a christening party for their baby. Before the guests arrived, they laid the infant on the bed in the master bedroom so he could nap. Well, out of habit, the guests, they entered the house. They walked back into the dark room. And not knowing the baby was sleeping on the bed, they tossed their coats onto the bed. The party was going on in the living room while the baby was suffocating under the pile of coats and sweaters. That's a gruesome story. (laughs) I'm not really sure it's true. But it does capture what happens so often at Christmas. At what is supposed to be a time of worship. The baby lies in the manger, forgotten under all our shopping and our partying. Someone needs to remind us. That's God there under our stuff. Hey, that's God beneath all our partying and all our shopping and all our gift giving. One year I was looking at the public school's December calendar and it listed several mundane events across the month of December. The day for soccer physicals, a teacher's work day, a dugout club meeting, But the 25th of December was conspicuously blank. Imagine, it's okay to have a dugout club meeting, but not the king of the universe's birthday? Do we really believe it's God in that manger? 
See, it's no secret that our world today has taken Christ out of Christmas. But what about us, the Christians? We who affirm our faith in doctrine, are we any different in practice? Author Joseph Stowell, he makes this observation. Many of us have found our sensitivities insulted and our convictions offended as court rulings remove the nativity scenes from the lawns of our city halls. It's far easier to object to that swipe of secularism than to realize that for years, many of us have been living through the Christmas season with figuratively no nativity scene on the front lawn of our lives. Caught up in the swirl and storm of the holiday, who of us has taken the time to proclaim Jesus? Your Christmas celebration will include parties and presents. But what about praise and proclamation? At Christmas time, do we really celebrate Jesus? It's amazing that the Grinch thought he could steal Christmas from the good citizens of Whoville. But they knew a secret that he didn't. Christmas isn't about stuff. As the poem goes... And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. That the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? I'll bet it means a little bit more than what you've been thinking, what I've been thinking. Has it hit you yet? God is in that manger. It's true, though the mechanics of a miracle are imponderable, the meaning of a miracle is crystal clear. The virgin birth means that the baby Mary laid in that manger is God. The Lord of all lords. The King of all kings. And Christmas is a time for two things. It's a time for stepping back. And it's also a time for stepping out. See, this is the time of the year when we need to step back and stop and slow down and really worship. At Christmas, let's make time to contemplate a miracle. To allow ourselves to be smitten again with wonder and awe over an event we'll never understand. I need to let the force of Christmas, the Christmas miracle, whittle away at my high-minded haughtiness. At my know-it-all arrogance. See, Christmas is the holiday that humbles us. This year, let the miracle of Jesus' incarnation bring you back to a simpler faith, to a childlike faith. Faith, though I don't understand what God is doing in my life right now. Faith, though I could never figure out God's miracles in a million years. To be brought to my knees in simple faith and in absolute trust is good, good medicine for my soul, for you too. To be baffled once a year is a blessing. 
We spend so much time the rest of the year questioning God. God, why are you doing this and why are you allowing that? Hey, Christmas reels in our curiosity. The meaning of Christmas is a reminder that God doesn't owe us an explanation. That He calls on us to bow before His omnipotence. Christmas encourages me to rest my probing mind in God's loving arms. And that's a good thing to do. I have a motto that I picked up several years ago. It reads, I love God because I know Him, but I adore Him because I cannot comprehend Him. Christmas is a time to ponder and to praise. It's a time to realize the glory and grandeur and greatness of the God we serve. At Christmas time, we once again find ourselves standing on holy ground. Christmas is a time to take a step back and to worship. But it's also time to take a step out and to witness. For despite the distractions Satan manufactures at Christmas... It is still the year's prime time for people to think about religious themes. At Christmas, hearts soften, spiritual sensitivities heighten. At Christmas time, even the hardest sinner considers the Savior. I've heard it said, our world never comes as close to being in contact with its greatest hope as it does at Christmas time. We should realize that the Spirit of Christ still takes advantage of the Spirit of Christmas. Thus, this is the time of year we need to go on the offensive. We need to declare to the world around us that heaven has invaded earth, that God can be met in a manger. On the first Christmas, shepherds were in the fields when suddenly the angels appeared. and They announced the news Messiah was born. They rushed to Bethlehem to locate the child and to worship their newborn king. Afterwards, Luke chapter 2, verse 17 says of the shepherds, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And here too is our Christmas commission. In the words of Luke, they made widely known the saying. Let's also make our love for our Savior widely known. Hey, Christmas is a time for stepping back. It's also a time for stepping out. It's a time for worship and witness. It's a time for praise and proclamation. Let's adore the Christ this Christmas. And let's announce to the world with the same enthusiasm as the shepherds, hey, that's God in that manger.